You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Happy New Year. It appears it was a rough night for a lot of Calvary people. <laughs> this is usually the busy service, but I guess uh, they needed their extra sleep from their wild evening. Well, it's great to see you who have come out. And I hope this new year, this 2023, is the best year, spiritually speaking, the deepest year where you draw the closest to Christ that you've ever been. And so with that in mind, I encourage you to pick up a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be looking at mainly verses 1 and 2 today. We're going to look at some other stuff, which we'll have on the overhead. But I encourage you to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, you know, we want to give you a Bible to take. So reach in the seat in front of you and take that one for yourself. As well in the bulletins, you'll see there's areas to make notes and fill in the blanks to help you retain what we are looking at today. This is an awesome uh, period of David's life that I've personally learned a lot out of. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. That's page 253 in the church Bible. Let's read it. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, and discontented rallied around him. He became their leader. About 400 men were there with him. Well, God, as we look at this period of David's uh, life living in a cave, uh, we can't imagine what it would be like to live in a cave for six, seven years, uh, to be on the run, to be a fugitive, uh, Lord, and, and yet we know that this was a very lonely time for David, uh, at least the first part of it was, and we know that this is a very lonely time for a lot of people, uh, that some people find themselves in their own caves, uh, places of sadness and, um, and depression and uh, addiction and regret, uh, Lord, some of those people uh, might be here today. Lord, you desire this time to be a time of healing, uh, to be a time where our faith grows, to be a time where we seek you, Lord. And so I'm just praying for anyone in here uh, who is in this uh, place, the same place David was, in a cave, uh, alone, uh, that you would uh, give them hope today, that you would show them you're with them, that you will show them uh, that they can be built up strong in this challenging time they're in. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we think of David, right, we often think of uh, images of him stepping out with his sling and his uh, few stones and facing off against Goliath, right? We love that picture of David. It, it uh, kindles in us uh, these feelings of the underdog overcoming the great adversities of life because we've all felt that way. We've felt overmatched uh, uh, or outmatched and overwhelmed at times in our lives, uh, but really... That was not the hardest time of David's life. It wasn't really even, although it was a big thing in our eyes, it wasn't really what built him. Uh, it was a problem that David faced that he overcame in one day. 
Uh, but there is a period that we're going to look at of David's life uh, that was really the defining time for his faith. It was really the time where his faith grew and where he became a leader. Although his fight with Goliath was short and it was quick, now he's going to enter into a long period of valleys, a period of hard times. It's going to be the real test of David's faith. Because David's like life, like our lives, is about to enter a hard time. And sometimes uh, we, we hear the promises of God and, and we believe the promises of God, but we don't see them played out. We don't see them happening in our life. And sometimes in our lives, like in David's life, it takes a long path to lead us to the fulfillment of those promises. And some of you know what that's like. Uh, like David, he was promised he was going to be the king. He was anointed to be the king, and yet it didn't seem to be happening. In fact, uh, as the next six or seven years play out, it seemed often that those promises were getting further and further and further away. And some of you know what that's like. Uh, you were promised some things by God. You felt him, he called you to some certain things. Maybe it was a job, and you thought, this job is going to be so great, and I'm going to produce so much fruit for the kingdom through it, and yet the job, the career that you're in, it seems like it's not producing much fruit, and it's actually producing a lot of hardship in your life. Maybe some of you felt called to be married uh, and to a certain person, and, and, and you were hoping for a storybook uh, marriage, and yet it's brought lots of hardship, and it feels like God brought you to a person that's really the opposite of you, and how can happiness ever come out of this situation? For some of you, it might have been uh, your children. You, you had the idea when you were young that you were going to raise these children. It was going to be easy, and these kids were just going to listen to you, and they were just going to be the most wonderful little children ever. And, and yet, you try with all your might and, and with all your intellect, and yet, it doesn't seem like the kids are really taking to what you're teaching them and laying down. For some of you, maybe it was a move you made. Maybe it was a move you made during COVID and you're like, we're going to a fresh start and, and it's going to be great from now on. We're going to move away from the challenges of where we came from and settle here, but it hasn't necessarily worked out the way you thought. Life does that. Sometimes God calls us to something and it takes a long time to see that something come to fruition. And that's what we're looking at in David's life. He comes to this place, to this cave, in a period of desperation, in a period of failure, in a period of loneliness. But it's also the period where this king's faith will be strengthened to maybe the, most, the strongest period of his life and where this uh, man who is strong in the Lord will become a leader of men. This is where he is shaped into the man who will lead the greatest dynasty in the history of Israel. But right now, he's gone from a champion to a best friend of the prince, uh, from a husband of the princess to a son-in-law of the king to a fugitive. That's where he is now. You ever see that movie with Harrison Ford? It came out a long time ago, The Fugitive, right? And, and Harrison, his life is going great. He's a successful doctor, and, and he's got a great wife and a great place. And, and one day he comes home, and his, his wife is murdered there, and, and that he realizes that he's actually been set up for it, and the cops are, uh, somebody called the cops already, and, and he realizes, oh, my, uh, my whole life has just come crashing down. And then he's on the run, right? And he's trying to outsmart uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who's uh, the Texas Rangers after him. Him, and yet he's trying to figure out who's framed him. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. That's kind of like the life of David. He is a fugitive. His life has just crumbled, and he doesn't know what's going on. 
And so when we see him on his run, he stops a few places before he gets to the cave. In chapter 21, you see a few stops he makes. First, he stops um, at a priest, and he, he lies to the priest, uh, the priest Elimelech in Nob, in the town of Nob. And he lies to get some food and a sword. And, and it's, it's really not one of the highlights of his uh, life. He's a desperate man, and, and, and he tricks this guy, and, and it ends up costing this guy his life. And then after that, he takes off with the sword uh, and some bread, and he runs not to God. He runs to Gath. And that's, Gath is one of the top five cities of Palestine at that day. The Philistines, uh, who were the, king, the enemies of Israel. He runs to the enemies of Israel. He runs away from his father-in-law, the king of Israel, right into the biggest city in Philistine. And he tries to blend in um, and hoping no one will see him. But they see him. And so David is highly stressed. He's overwhelmed. He's lost everything. He's probably 21, 22 years old at the time. And, and so he runs to something that he shouldn't be running to, looking for comfort. He tries to lose himself in a place where he shouldn't be losing himself. And sometimes that's us, right? When we're in a place of feeling overwhelmed and desperate, we go looking for comfort in places that God tells us not to go looking for comfort in. Maybe it's in pleasure, as he's told us not to go, to numb the reality of our lives. Maybe it's in our work. We just throw ourselves in our work and ignore everything. Maybe it's in other people that we shouldn't be seeking comfort in. Maybe we just lose ourselves in technology and endless social media. David seemed to be, after he defeated Goliath, uh, moving, he moved into this time of great prosperity and success. And, and as I read the text, I don't see him seeking after the Lord very much. He seems to be riding on a cloud. You ever had a period of your life where there seems to be a great success and you just feel like you're just riding on a cloud and you're not really that dependent on the Lord anymore. You're not really seeking him for every decision you make. We don't see him seeking the, the Lord where he should go, if, if he should go to Gath and if this is a good decision. He's just making decisions based off of emotion. Sometimes that's us if we're right. That's definitely me. Maybe it's not you, but it's David and it's me so often acting off of what we feel instead of what we know we should do. But he's recognized while he's in Gath. And if you look in chapter 21, verse 12, uh, so they say, hey, that's David. That's the champion. And they bring him to uh, the king. In verse 12, David took this to heart and became very afraid of uh, King Achish. Of Gath, and he pretended to be insane in his presence, and he acted like a madman around him, uh, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to me to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? Have you ever acted crazy? Have you ever been at the end of your rope, been so stressed that, that you do something, you act in a way that you know if you saw another person acting like that, you'd be like, that person is off their rocker. That person is losing their mind. Have, come on. I'm, I'm not the only one that can look back on my life and say, what were you thinking, Emery? How dumb could you possibly be? That's David. He's at a desperate period of his life. I think some of us can probably uh, feel what Akish is feeling uh, when when their servants bring more problems to me, he's like, oh, great, more crazy problems for me to deal with. Like, I don't have enough in my life. You ever get to that point? You're just like, one more crazy thing to deal with. So that's the scene. 
That now brings David. He takes off, and we pick it up in chapter 22, verse 1. So David left Gath and took refuge in Adullam. The cave of Adullam was only about two miles from where he had defeated Goliath in the valley. You can see it on a map today. Uh, it got its name from David's time there. It's, it's a famous cave system. And I can just imagine as, as David is uh, leaving Gath, because if you look at a map, Gath, he has to go through the valley where he defeated Goliath to get to the caves. And I can just imagine him walking through the valley, remembering three or four years ago when he was at the height of his life. There's where he, he defeated Goliath. I can see him, and, and he's probably looking up, and, he, and he's remembering the cheers of the Israelites, and oh, that, that was such a great time, man. It seemed like life was just going to be awesome from that point on. But it didn't work out that way. And then he, he finds himself a cave to crawl into. And, and Israel isn't like Canada. Now, the Middle East is a lot of rock and a lot of sand. And in it, there's vast cave systems. Now, that's the way the, the people that have lived there have used those. For, some of them live in them. They travel through them. The Taliban were able to defeat the Russians and eventually wear down NATO by using the cave systems. We're talking vast cave systems to move from one area to another area. Uh, the Vietnamese were able to beat the Americans by using caves, vast caves throughout the, the hills to beat the, wear the Americans down. And later, about 900 years later, the Zealots... Uh, will use the cave systems that David is in now to fight against the Romans. And this is where David is now. So Adullam is translated refuge. It's a cave of refuge, defined as a dwelling place of safety. And it's where David is finally going to seek the one that he used to seek when he was in the wilderness. The one that, that he hasn't been seeking when he's been running to the priest. The one that he hasn't been seeking when he's been running to the Philistines. It's where he comes broken, worn out, alone. But in that loneliness, God is going to show him he is the one constant that he can, be trusted, that he can trust in. In the cave of refuge, David's going to learn a few things, uh, two key things. The first is that God is the only one who is completely dependable. God is the only one who is completely dependable in your life. I need you to know that. I need you to hear that. People are going to fail us. Some will be accidentally. Some will be on purpose. But they will fail us. They will hurt us. It's inevitability. They will even die. And some people, for when they lose somebody that they love, they're angry at that person. How could you leave me here on this earth alone to live without you? Circumstances will change. You can be coasting high one minute, and then all of a sudden, things fall apart. A job changes. A government changes. A church falls apart. Your health goes. Whatever it is, it can fall apart. People and circumstances will fail us. And maybe you look in your life and you're like, I've never had one of these bad things happen. I've never entered a period of loneliness in a, a cave period like David. Well, unfortunately, rest assured, most likely at some point in your life, you will because it is a part of life. And in that, you'll either turn bitter or you'll come to realize that God is the only one that you can completely depend on all of your life to be there. That's why he said in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, For the Lord your God is the one who is with you. He will never leave you 
nor abandon you. And the sooner we learn that and ingrain it in our hearts, the less disappointed we will be and the less bitter we will be when these periods of caves come in our lives. So the cave of refuge and the other caves David will live in over the next six to eight years are periods where some of the deepest shaping of David will take place. And we, we know, we can confirm that he wrote at least three of his psalms in the cave period. Scholars can identify at least three. Maybe there was more. But they say the first one was most likely Psalm 142. Uh, even though we, we have to remember that the Bible isn't written in chronological order, so the Psalms aren't in order of when they were written. Uh, they're mixed in there, but scholars have identified this as most likely the first one. Sometime in that first period when David was alone in the caves with God. It's called uh, the cry of distress. I'll read you the first or the seven verses. I cry out to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I reveal my trouble to him. Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. Although this path I travel, there are hidden, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, no one stands up for me. There is no refuge for me. No one cares about me. I cry to you, Lord, and I say, you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Free me from the prison so that I may praise your name. The righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. You can hear the sadness and the desperation in the words of David. He, he doesn't think there's a refuge. Uh, he knows from the, the time in the wilderness that the Lord is there, but can you see the desperation, the almost hopelessness? Nobody stands with me. There's chops everywhere. There's nowhere where I can go. This is the, the period that he enters into the cave, but he's already on his way to being healed. And this is key. We see a transformation through the Psalms of David's faith. That is, is that in Psalm 142, we see David being honest enough to admit he's not in control. He's not in control, and he knows it. He went from being the, the general, he went from being the, the guy married to the princess, the, the king's number one, to having nothing. He's not in control of anything. The reality is setting in. His efforts aren't going to fix the problem, and that's one of the hardest things for us humans to admit that really, in the end, we're not in control. We're not in control. And we're, we're a mess. If we're honest, if I'm honest with you, often I'm a mess. I'm not in control of my emotions. I'm not in control of my actions. And when we can admit that, when we can be honest like David is, then we can start to seek the one who is in control. When's the last time you were honest with God? When's the last time you were honest with Him? Lord, I'm broken. Lord, I'm a mess. Lord, I'm hurting people. Lord, I am not in control of this situation. If you can be honest, it's a great step forward for you. And you know, then we start to see in Psalm 57, they estimate it's, it's maybe a year or two later after the one we just read. 
We see step two. First, step one is he admits he's not in control, and then we start to see him take step two. Let's read verses one to three. He says, be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you, and I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. I will call to the Most High God, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me. He reaches down from heaven and saves me, challenging the one who tramples me. God sends his faithful love and truth. Now we see David in his words uh, in Psalm 57, uh, looking to the only one who can save him. He realizes the king isn't going to save him. He realizes his might isn't going to save him. His family, his friends aren't going to save him. There's only one person who can save him. Notice before he had no refuge. Now he uses the word refuge. I will take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wing until the danger passes. Here his language is changing from desperation to hope with the realization that only God can intervene in this situation. And that's a good place to be. When we realize we can't save our children, only God can draw our children to him. That we can't fix our marriage, only God can fix our marriage. That, that we can't change world governments, only God can change world governments. That's a great place to come to. You know, if I was to ask most of you, who is your savior? You would say, Jesus is my savior, right? It's a good Sunday school answer. But if we really look at our lives, often us Christians, us Canadian Christians, our lives say we're looking to something else as our savior so often, right? We, we know it up here, but our lives don't actually say it. Uh, we might look to our spouse to be Jesus, right? Uh, we know they're not Jesus, but we kind of think they should be, and they should fulfill us in every way that Jesus should because we don't see Jesus. We, we know he's there, but we don't see him. We put the person in our life, often our spouse, and set them up to be Jesus. So when they let us down, when they disappoint us, uh, when they fail because they're a false savior, we're so broken, we're so disappointed. How could you let me down? How could you betray me? How could you do this to me? But they were never meant to carry that weight. For some of us, we, we make an institution uh, our savior. Maybe it's uh, the government. Oh, this new government's going to fix everything. They are going to be the ones to, to really turn things around. Or, or maybe we make a church. Oh, the, the church is going to fix me, and these people are going to just put everything back together. Or, or maybe it's a counselor, a psychologist, or a scientist. The scientists are going to fix everything. But again, these institutions can't replace God. Some of them can be good. And some of them can be bad, but they're all going to let us down if we set them up to be our savior. So let me ask you, who do you look to? If you're to look at your life, uh, what does your life say you're looking to for salvation? Uh, what is really the strong crutch that you lean on? Is it another person? Is it an institution? Or maybe is it yourself? That's often the hardest one. When we think of ourselves as the savior to our situation. And when we try and try and, and, and use all our intellect and all our abilities, and yet we can't fix the situation, that can be sometimes the most disappointing thing for us all. Who are you looking to to save you? God or something else? 
David is taking a pivotal step forward. He realizes he's not in control. Uh, He's looking to God as the only one that can fix things. It isn't going to be fast. He doesn't just pray for a week and then curse God and go off. No, he's praying constantly. He's seeking constantly. And then later on, uh, sometime a few years later, we see Psalm 34. We see a, a radical difference in David's life. In the last psalm, he's looking after some people, but by this time, he's leading those people. Let's read verses 1 to 11 together, Psalm 34. They're on the overhead. I will, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are the holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will, lack, will not lack anything good. Come, children, and listen, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. At this point, he's still living in caves, not this cave, but caves. He's still on the run, uh, but now he's a leader of men. And now he has an army. Now he's, the God has him doing things. You notice he's still on the run, but he's confident in the Lord. He's seen the Lord take action in his life. As he gives more of his life over to the Lord, as he realizes he's in, not in control, he starts to make the changes. And the biggest change you and I can make in our lives is to do what God asks of us. Did you know that faithful obedience, that's the biggest thing we can do with our faith? We believe And then we step out in faith. And in Psalm 34, we see David was humble enough to make the necessary changes to his life. He's no longer seeking his own power. He's no longer seeking other people, the enemies. He's seeking the Lord. And like we talked about, there seems to be this period uh, where David wasn't seeking the Lord much. But if you read from chapters 22 on to chapters 30, it seems like for a lot of his decisions, he's seeking the Lord. Should I go after these people? Yes. Can I trust these people? Yes, the Lord will, or the Lord will say no. Uh, are they going to turn me over? Yes, they are, and so on and so forth. He seems to be seeking the Lord for his decision-making a lot more now because he's realized that God's way is the best way. When I was 16, I, I learned how to scuba dive. I became a certified uh, diver. And, and it was an, diving is an amazing th- thing that you can participate in where you get to see all that God created. You think up here is amazing? Go, under, go to the lake or the ocean, and it is just amazing to see all the life God has created. But I've learned in the certification that there are rules to diving, that if you want to enjoy the dive, you have to follow the rules, So one of those is that uh, you have to know what depth you're going to. You have to consult the charts to see how long you can stay down so that you don't get uh, oxygen poisoning toxicity. And because oxygen air shrinks 
the deeper you go, it, you have to consult the charts to tell you how long you can stay down safely and how long you'll have air for. Because you don't want to run out of air when you're halfway down. Because another law of diving is that you can only surface at a certain speed. You have to watch your gauge and only come up slowly or else you will get poisoning again. And then you'll end up in a decompression chamber, right? Diving can be a great thing, but only if you follow the rules that have been laid out. And life can be an amazing adventure, but we have to follow God's way of doing things. And again, we as most of you who come here, I would say to you, do you believe that the Bible is God's uh, inerrant word given to us by him with all that life, with all the answers to life and faith? And you'd say, yes, I believe that. But so often, when if we really examine our lives, we see that our lives aren't lived out according to the way God desires us to live. I challenge you, have you ever uh, just gone with a subject, say it's finances or say it's parenting, uh, and, and just looked at everything the Bible has to say about this and then compared it to your life? Like, have you ever gone, uh, husbands, have you ever looked at, what does the Bible say a wife is to be? And, and looked at every passage that you can find and then compared it to what your expectations for a wife should be. Or wives, have you ever looked at what does the Bible say a husband is to be? And then taken that and what God has to say and compared it to what you think a husband should be. And have you seen, I bet you if you compare these things, you'll see, ah, there's a lot of things that I'm expecting of my partner that the Bible doesn't actually say is their job to do. Or there's a way that I'm managing my finances or I'm taking care of my body or I'm, or I'm being a Christian that it's really not the way God desired me to be. It's just like diving. You can't expect the ride to go well if you're not living and doing the things that God has told us to do. We like to, unfortunately, even if it's subconsciously, make up our own ways, make up our own excuses why ah, I don't have to do it that way. But we don't often like the reality of what comes next. So David seems to be learning and he's, he's progressing. And, and so this cave period doesn't break him. It actually makes him a better person. The second thing we uh, learn is that the cave is where David becomes a true leader. It's where he became a true leader. It's where he learned to lead men. Uh, he didn't really know how to lead men well before. He was a warrior. But leading people is very different. Uh, leading people successfully is very different. So let's look at it, the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, discontented, rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So who are these four groups? Well, first, it's his family. It makes sense that his family would flee to him because uh, who's the king going to go after next or where is he going to expect David to go? Bethlehem, where his family is. So it would make sense that the family's like, we're out of here because we're probably going to be on that assassin's list. So they take off, they hear where he is, and they come to him. And now, this might be a challenging thing. I've thought about this. How would David welcome them? And imagine David's there. He's in his cave. He's, he's sad. He's alone. His life has fallen apart. And his family shows up. 
This is the father who never really seemed to love him in the way that a, a son hopes a father would to appreciate him. These are the brothers that uh, some of them seem to have a lot of conflict with David and, and think of him as not much. And now they've come to him looking for him to protect and care for them. Sometimes, if we're honest, forgiving and caring for the very people, uh, our family, that were supposed to be the ones who cared for us and, and took and uh, nurtured us growing up is hard. It's hard to forgive those who have hurt us the most. And yet David, if you read later on, David will find a safe place for his parents to live. David fulfills uh, his honoring his mother and father, and he seems to take his brothers under his care, and his brothers, some of his brothers come under his leadership. It's really, again, David's attitude uh, that changes the family dynamic. So they come. The second group are the desperate. Now, sometimes when you compare Hebrew to English, it isn't uh, necessarily what we think it is. So it's, uh, the Hebrew word for desperate is zuk. It means to be under severe pressure or severe stress from outside sources. Okay, so we're not thinking desperate in our own mind. When I think of desperate, I think of myself uh, at in grade nine. Uh, I, w- I was reminded of a time when, so I was a skid in grade nine, if you know what that word means, a loser, okay? Uh, nothing going for myself, nothing that, uh, I wouldn't want my daughter dating me, let's just say that. <clears throat> And so it was grade nine, and I used to walk uh, from my school, and there was another girl that uh, walked along uh, with myself and a few others, and and her name was Emily, and she was like one of the beautiful girls, uh, we could say one of the hot girls of the school. And and Emily had broken up with her boyfriend, and there was this dance coming up, the semi-formal. And and so I'm like, as I walk with her, and she was always nice to me, probably felt sorry for me. She's always nice to me, and I heard she broke up with the boyfriend. I was like, would you like to go to the dance with me? And she, at first she said, yeah, okay. And then so I went and told my friend, and I can remember what he said. Wow, she really must be desperate to go with you. <coughs> but apparently she wasn't because a few days later, her boyfriend found out, and, and he said, I'm going with you, or her ex-boyfriend, and they became boyfriend. And she said, sorry, I can't go with you. So they weren't desperate like that. They were desperate because they had forces going against them, severe stress from an outside source, probably Saul, probably Saul's government coming down on them. So they come to him. Who's the, the next group? The in debt. So again, this comes from the uh, Hebrew word nasha, uh, which means, okay, and you have to understand it in its context, uh, people in debt to a number of creditors. So the system back then wasn't like the system today. Up until like the 1950s, somewhere around that, you couldn't, the average person couldn't get credit. It's not like today where you can just, you're 18, and well, you get uh, you know, two grand credit card to go buy junk that you can't afford so you can get in debt for the rest of your life. It's not like that. Uh, back then, uh, the only assets a person really had, the average person, was uh, the family property, which has passed down generation to generation. And so uh, when a father would die, he would give a portion of the inheritance to the children. And that would be really their own equity. You you couldn't have the sort of lifestyle that we have now. Uh, But often, as most people were farmers, there would be a 
a drought or something like that or a bad harvest, and you wouldn't have enough money because the money you'd take in from uh, the crop would have to get you through the year, and so you'd have to go to the creditor, and you'd place your property um, as the holding device. But you wouldn't want to lose the property because it was a great shame to lose the family property. So then you might go to another creditor if that doesn't work out, if you have another bad harvest, to get some more money to pay that creditor off because there was no bankruptcy. In the Middle East, as it is still in many places today, if you can't pay your creditors, you become a slave. That's why the Bible says the, the, the debtor is a slave to the lender. So really, they would come and take your children, take your wife, and place your family in slavery. So most likely, scholars say the people that were coming to him were the poor people who were taken advantage of by the creditors and were going to be taken as slaves. So who's the last group? The discontented. This comes from the Hebrew word mar-nepesh, mar-nepesh. It means those who are severely mistreated or oppressed uh, by outside sources. So those who, who are marginalized, those who are taken advantage of, those who have been wronged. Society's lowest, we could say. The losers of society. The ones that society says have no value. God seems to be sending them to David. And now we got to remember, Saul is like, Saul, the king, is almost, he's manic, right? We see extreme uh, emotional changes. One minute he's, he's flying high, the next minute he's down, down there. The next minute he's suicidal. The next minute he wants to, to kill everyone. He is just out of control. And so he is going to actually go and kill the whole entire village of Nob that David went to to seek help from. Just because one priest got tricked and helped him, Saul is so out of control, he's going to go and kill everyone. So all these people are flocking to David. And it's amazing that David is able to take this band of uh, the downcasted, and they're going to become some things to him. One, they're going to become his closest friends. And some of the times in your lowest periods of life, the people that, that really come to you, that rally around you, they can become your closest and most trusted friends. And number two, they're going to become his core leadership. David is going to have the most successful military force in Israel's history. Solomon will have the most prosperous economic uh, uh, government. But David expands the borders, and it is the most fearsome. And these men that come to him are going to make up his core leadership. And the third thing is they're going to become his mighty men of valor. The mighty men of valor uh, were this legendary group of soldiers that lived in David's time. Uh, David was one of them. They were like the special forces, and yet they were still government officials. Uh, and their stuff is made of legends. And men at the next ready man, we're going to look at what does it mean to be a mighty man of valor? Because it, it isn't actually your might that makes you a mighty man of valor. It's so much more than that. So these are the men that God is sending to David. And so there's some lessons for us to, to learn. Uh, one is that when everything appears to be going wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean everything is going wrong. God is at work. And we have to believe that by faith, that even in the darkest times, God is still at work. Number two, don't despise the day of small beginnings. You may be in a place in your life and you're like, oh, my life just, it's just so insignificant and I have hardly anything now and, and I, I can't, I'm not the person I wanted to be at this age. Don't despise that. If you're being faithful where God has placed you, 
God is proud of you, and God will work with you where you are. Number three, don't despise all the people that God sends to you. Because these group of that society would say, solitary, let them have it. They are going to become the most powerful group of people. And don't despise the people that God has sent along in your lives now. So why do these people follow David? Well, because they see in him a man worth following. Because they see a man who admits he's not in control. A man who points people to God. And a man who is willing to make changes in his life when it's necessary. And when you can be around a person who's humble enough to do that, it provides an atmosphere for everyone to be honest and open. And I think we can agree that sometimes churches are fake. Sometimes we act fake. We have issues, we have problems, and yet we won't uh, let anybody in. And so churches aren't what God desired them to be. But sometimes we can come to churches, come to a church, a fellowship, and we can not be willing to change our lives or just, this is the way I am, take me or leave me, I'm not changing, and I ain't listening to anyone either. It's my way or the highway, and what good is that? We need to be people who are honest enough to admit we're not in control. We point each other to Christ, and yet we're willing to make the changes in each other's lives that are necessary. In closing, I remember I'm was at a Remembrance Day service quite a while ago, a long time ago, before I became a pastor. And I sat down with this uh, retired soldier, and we were just talking about what we missed, um, about the military. And, and one thing he said, I don't miss much, but I miss the friendship. I haven't been able to find it anywhere else. I miss being with a group of guys uh, that know me, that care about me, that I can laugh with, that I can cry with, that have my back, that I can be honest with. I miss that, and I haven't been able to find it anywhere else. And it reminded me when I later heard a sermon um, where the pastor, uh, Stephen Cole, he quoted somebody who I haven't been able to quote, um, but he said this. Let me read it. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, inclusive fellowship. It is an unshakable fellowship. You can tell people your secrets and they're not going to be shocked and they're not usually going to tell anyone else or judge you at a bar. A bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know, to be known, to love, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. How many people were probably across the street or whatever the bars, filling the bars? They're looking for what Christ desires his church to be, an honest place where we all admit we're a mess, a place where we'll forgive each other when we mess up, a place where we won't judge each other, but a place where we actually will help each other to become the people that God desires us to be. And wouldn't you want to be a part of a family like that? That's what David had going with his mighty men in the cave, and that's what God desires for us. And so as we now participate in communion together, I want to just take a minute and pray. Give you a chance if you don't have your communion cup to grab one from the back. Lord, another year, 
thank you. Thank you for 2023 or 2022. And for a lot of people, it was a tough year. Things didn't go necessarily as they had planned. And Lord, and, and we hope and desire for 2023 to be different. Oh Lord, it doesn't seem to be getting better in the world, if we're honest. We can, most of us see that. There's going to be some magic person that comes in and fixes everything. But you're there. You are the constant in our lives. You are the one waiting for us to come to you. And so I pray, Lord, as we participate in this act of remembrance and what you told us to do, that we would remember that you are the God who can lead us through these valleys in our lives, that you are the God who is with us in the cave, that you are the God who will never let us down. Lord, would you help us to admit we're not in control would you help us to turn our eyes to you as their savior, not just for our souls, but for every facet of our lives? And would you help us, Lord, in 2023 to really make the changes that are necessary so that we can see a better year? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.